This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Nightmares and Dreamscapes, a Stephen nope. King adaptation. Oh, wait, nope, sorry, that's <laughs> not quite right. This is Sexy and Surreal. A David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I am Joe Lipset, and I'm joined as always by Terry Menard. Hi, Terry. I was almost going to go with you with that for a moment. I was like, wait, no, are, is this, are we resurrecting <laughs> Nightmares <laughs> and Dreamscapes for this? Oh, uh, man. But Joe, I do have a question for you. Mm-hmm. If you could go back in time and kill baby Hitler, would you? Uh, see, here's the thing. I don't believe in a time travel narrative because I think it all just gets a little too wonky. So this idea that you could go back and just completely alter the course of history, I don't buy it. So while I would love to do humanity a service of, you know, say, yeah, taking out Hitler or maybe a certain orange Cheeto, <laughs> I, I just don't buy that it's possible. I, I'm the same way, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I'm. I, it's nice in theory, and it would be nice to say, yeah, hell yeah, I would go sacrifice my life for that. Mm-hmm. But honestly, I don't know if it would actually change anything. Right. And of course, folks, the reason that Terry asked the question <laughs> is because we are talking about David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, which deals with such a conundrum in which our main character, Johnny, who is course played by christopher walken sensing that presidential hopeful uh martin sheen could be responsible for more or less what like ending the world starting world war three yeah basically nuclear annihilation is kind of the implication i get from that yeah absolutely so he ends up murdering himself in an effort to kill this guy and of course he dies as a bit of a terrorist because no one would naturally know why he did it but he does discover that he did at least the right thing because he does knock out sullivan's chances of becoming the president yeah i mean that's the movie right there is is that are we are we done (laughs) (laughs) no but i'm i'm curious to hear your thoughts on this one joe because this is weirdly enough one of the few that i had seen of mm-hmm. Cronenberg's work prior to starting this podcast and it's one maybe of two or just one that you there's a couple seen. yeah oh okay. sorry I'm gonna quickly correct myself I, I said Sullivan I meant to say Stilson that's the Martin Sheen character but no you are correct Terry so I've not seen this one until now and I haven't seen Madam Butterfly and then I haven't okay. seen a couple of like the really recent like 2010s Cronenbergs but this is the big oh actually no I haven't seen Naked Lunch either so we'll we'll come up oh. to another one that I haven't seen in a bit but yeah I think those are the three until we hit the 2000s that I hadn't seen and I was interested in this one because I knew that it had been adapted from a Stephen King property you know as well as anyone that sometimes Uncle Steve and I don't always see eye to eye. So I was interested to see if Cronenberg was going to bring out some of the more interesting components or kind of fix some of the issues I have with King's work. And I have to say that unfortunately, this feels more like a Stephen King joint than a David Cronenberg joint to me. That's absolutely fair. I am curious before, um, because I have a lot of things I want to kind of pinpoint on there, but had you read the book? 
I have not read the book. I knew the story in part because I actually watched the TV show a little bit. I think I watched one okay. or two seasons of that one, which I've gathered is a little bit more in line with the original source material. Okay. I have not seen the television show because I... There was like a time where when this because when did that TV show come out? It was like the it's early, the early 2000s. Yeah. And I just I don't know TV some at that time for me was not doing it. And mm -hmm. I as much as like I enjoy the themes of this novel, it's never been one of my favorite of his. Okay. And so when it was being ad adapted as a TV series, also partly because I remember as a kid not really caring for the film. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not sure I'm going to want to sit through. Because at that time, they were like, what? It felt like, maybe they, this one wasn't, but no, this one was 13 to 19 episodes. Okay. I was mm -hmm. thinking that it was probably going to be like a typical TV series that was, you know, 20 to 24 episodes. And I just like, I don't know right. if I can sit through that. Well, the idea isn't inherently sustainable unless you want to turn it into a procedural where he's yep. just touching people, seeing their future, changing the future, which really, we did a bunch of those back in the early 2000s. That's kind of where yes, genre TV was at. It was. And I think that now that you're mentioning it, I think that was probably my fear because one thing I do not care for is like monster of the week, case of the week, that kind of style of telling um, mm -hmm. episodic content. Where there's like maybe an overarching story, but every episode is based on like a, something else completely unrelated while that story is sort of percolating in the background. And that just has never done it for me. And I was kind of afraid that that's what the TV series was going to do. Is that kind of what it did? Uh, from what I remember, it was a mix of that with, I think, season arcs. So there were okay. kind of like villains that Johnny would have to go up against or or like mini arcs that he would have to contend with that brought the story together so it wasn't always just one-offs but there were a fair number of one-offs as well okay yeah and i while i was watching this this movie this time because i remember watching it as a kid i had seen it after i had seen christopher walken in communion and that was my only mm. point of reference for the character mm -hmm. and i just thought first of all i thought he was like terribly miscast oh interesting I thought he was a little creepy. But again, I was a kid. Well, <laughs> All I had was the weird communion. Because there's like, have you seen communion? I think I've seen the box art. It's very striking, isn't it? Yeah. And it's it's basically an alien abduction movie. And there's this right. part where he is like literally naked, almost mm -hmm. dancing with aliens. Oh. Like it's very weird. It kind of creeped me out. Okay. And so I went into this with seeing that character and going, no, as a little kid watching this movie. Mm -hmm. But um. On this rewatch, which, again, it's probably been close to 30 years since I've seen it. Oh, wow. I was thinking, I can see why this would be a TV series, because the mm -hmm. movie itself is sort of structured into three almost vignettes of, oh, of yes. story throughout his life. And it makes for kind of a um, it's jarring, weird watch. It? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I will confess. When I say that this isn't my favorite Cronenberg, I liked parts of it. I didn't like other parts of it. The big barrier that I found, apart from just, I think I thought the movie was one thing and then it turned out to be a couple of different things. And that's really on me to have to reconcile with my own expectations. But reflecting back on the viewing experience, 
it feels like, yeah, this is a movie divided into three parts. So we've got the accident and then the aftermath, as we learn that Johnny has this kind of psychic phenomenon and he gets to kind of do trial runs with it, right? We've got the nurse and her daughter, and then we've got the doctor at this clinic, Wezak, who we learn that his mom is actually still alive from, from the war. And then Johnny gets recruited by the sheriff and the deputy to come and help solve a series of uh, serial murders and rapes. And I'll confess, when we got to that second part with the case and the murders, I got really interested. I, I was actually really on board. And I think some of the more Cronenbergian visually alluring parts of the movie happen in this middle second section. And then we end that and it feels so abrupt and then we have to kind of almost restart the narrative even though we've we've seen hints that stillman is going to become more important based on you know there's people who have been canvassing for him there's the posters like the the billboards that have gone up and around so you know that you don't cast martin sheen in something and then just have him be a background player he's obviously going to be important and i think when we get to the actual stuff with that character, it is exciting. It just takes a while to ramp back up because it kind of felt like the movie had come to a natural climax and then we had to restart everything. Yep, exactly. That is that is exactly my thoughts on rewatching this. The biggest change from what I remember from the book, again, it's been a very long time since I've read the novel, but from what I remember about it, it was sort of split between two different points of view so we follow johnny smith and then we also follow gred stilson and like the opening sequence is johnny is a child while he's like ice skating and he kind of falls unconscious and then mumbles a prophetic warning while this is happening we see a young door-to-door bible salesman named greg stilson who vindictively kicks a dog to death and so it puts them at the very beginning as sort of like two things that are going to eventually come together. Mm, That's so Stephen King, isn't it? (laughs) It really is. And that's what I remember from the book. And so watching this and seeing just basically one set of it, and sure, they pepper in Stilson throughout the entirety of of the the film in terms of like, this is a name, this is a name, this is a name. Mm -hmm. We don't really get to see anything from his perspective. And so it does give it more of an anthology type format to it as opposed to mm-hmm. telling a more cohesive story i found yes and and when you start to unpack it that way you do realize oh yeah okay so one of these could be its own standalone episode of a tv show and the other yep. one the same and in some ways i do think that screenwriter jeffrey bohm has made some interesting decisions in adapting the story like you can tell that we've streamlined certain things we're trying to make certain things more cinematic so it kind of makes sense in some fashion it's just that when you put it together as a cohesive whole it still does as you said it does feel like vignettes and i think it's a problem only if you like one of them more than the other or if yeah if you're looking for a cohesive story this film is really giving you a couple of those and you have to either enjoy that or recognize "Hmm, maybe it's not working as well for me absolutely and i'm glad you brought up jeffrey bowen because like i was looking at the the history of this film about like how it kind of got made Mm -hmm. and his script was originally commissioned from lorimar film entertainment 
and they were de- developing an adaptation. And then that company got rid of their film division. Mm-hmm. It was swooped up by Dino De Laurentiis. Right. Uh, Deborah Hill gets brought on board to produce. Shocked by that. I know. When I saw it produced by it, I was like, oh, wow. This uh-huh. is a Deborah Hill joint. <laughs> Although I immediately then was like, hmm, well, I guess she didn't have the magic touch with the lone female character in this movie because Oof. Sarah is woefully underdeveloped. Yes, she is. What what I think is interesting, though, is that when when De Laurentiis got this, he did not like Boehm's screenplay and mm-hmm. wanted King to adapt his own novel. I'm right. really glad that King did not adapt his own novel because I historically do not like King's teleplays and scripts. Right. And this would have been in the early 80s. So the book comes out in 79. It seems to me that they were working on this as early as 1981. So I'm trying to think of like, not to be mean spirited, but like, when was the height of King's drug addiction? I think it would have been right around now. Yeah, it would have been. When was Cujo written? Cujo was written. Yep. 1981. Yep. Because that was that was the book that he famously does not remember writing. Right. Uh, And so, yes, this would have been smack dab in that time. And it's interesting because I do find Cujo to be a very brutal novel. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the adaptation sort of lessens that as a movie. Okay. But what's interesting is that supposedly David Cronenberg is the one who ultimately rejected using King's script because he found it, quote, needlessly brutal. And that Mm. would make sense for this time period because, as I said, he wrote Cujo at this time period, and that is a very brutal novel. He was just in a bad headspace. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But I am curious, the one thing, the reason why I bring this up is that there was another script that Mm -hmm. De Laurentiis commissioned from Andre Zulowski. Right. And that would have been (laughs) intriguing. Yeah, folks, if you don't know who Zulowski is most famously known as the director of 1981's Possession, which is psychosexual to the max, Sam Neill, Isabella Johnny, just total mindfuckery, but dealing, ironically enough, with some of the same issues, right? Like, yes, that movie is very much steeped in, you know, what's going on with the Berlin Wall. And of course, this is really about a conflict with, at the time in 1983, the USSR. Yeah, this is all about Cold War fears and about that kind of aspect of of our society and our and our political situation at the time. Mm-hmm. And I honestly, like when I saw that, I was like, oh, my God, I right. cannot imagine what that script would have been. Because I think of any other screenwriter that David Cronenberg could have maybe drawn from, mm-hmm. I think he would be more in line with Andre than than uh, Jeffrey Boehm, who would go on to write Lethal Weapon, Inner Space. Oh. The Lost Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, like very commercial, right. very um, big budget type stuff. I just I, I sit here thinking, man, what would this have been with Andre's work? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Like when you scroll down through the Wikipedia page to get to that part, it just kind of says there were some issues with De Laurentiis maybe not understanding the script because apparently it had been written in Polish and then translated to English and then back into something else. So there was probably a bunch of things that just did not end up translating well. But part of me is like, ooh, I want to look at that script. <laughs> I know. I wish I could find it. I, I did I did a, a brief Google search before we started recording to see if I could find it somewhere because that would have been, been fascinating, honestly. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. So coming back to the dead zone proper, Mm -hmm. 
you mentioned that you found Christopher Walken scary the first time you saw this because you were younger and you had that communion association with him. How do you think he plays this now? Um, I, I like him in this, actually. I think as I was watching this and I was thinking back to the previous Cronenberg movies that we had seen up to this point, and one of the things that I've noticed is that he hires actors that that don't look conventionally attractive. Right. There's always something odd about them. I sometimes feel like the main characters he picks could be a cipher for himself well, in his in his movies. Mm-hmm. So watching this, I was like, this makes sense that he would hire Christopher Walken because in the beginning he has this really weird bowl cut, and then he mm-hmm. turns in after the the coma, he's looking more Christopher Walkeny, and right. it kind of adds this sort of. It, I think it kind of leans into the 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 otherness of the character in terms of the way everyone reacts to him that either they need something from him or they call him a freak. Cause there's mm-hmm. that one moment early on in the, in the film where he's having a press conference and this hotshot reporter is like, yeah, show me something. And he grabs his hand <laughs> yep. and it's like, he calls him a, a fucking freak. And so we have those moments. And I think that his character kind of, I think his presence on screen sort of, enhances that otherness that mm-hmm. would make someone be a little distrustful of him. And so I think it works better than than when I was a kid and saw it, to be perfectly honest. What do you think of it, though? Yeah, it's interesting that you say all that, because I was trying to reflect on my cinematic experiences with Christopher Walken, because I feel like in some ways, he becomes more Christopher Walkeny as he gets older. Yeah, that sounds like an absolutely absurd thing to say. Of course he does. He's a man <laughs> himself. I mean, like he develops a kind of persona that we see in somebody like Jack Nicholson, Diane Keaton, mm-hmm. even Johnny Depp to a certain point, right? Where every iteration that you see of them is them playing almost themselves with different costuming, maybe some glasses or something like that. But it's hard to shake the public persona or what we think of them. And I feel like Christopher Walken is the the unusual dude with the really great voice. So mm-hmm. I always associate him with things like Sleepy Hollow or um, he did a couple of music videos. Like he, I think he did a Fat Boy Slim music video. He did. So he's got that kind of kooky oddball outsider, but also a touch scary, maybe a little sexy. You know, your mileage mm-hmm. may vary. And this feels like a more pulled back, restrained, possibly authentic version of him or just younger, but he still has that kind of charming weirdo vibe going for him. And I won't lie, I do think that the hair is kind of instrumental in that. I'm a big hair person when it comes to movies. So when the movie opens and he's got this really unfashionable bowl cut, but he's playing a school teacher, he looks... Mm -hmm dowdy and then he comes out of the coma and all of a sudden he looks a little rocker like hard-edged almost like he stuck his finger in a light socket and just left (laughs) the hair sticking straight up and i think a it's a really great visual change he's a completely different person he's not the same as what he was like before the coma but also it really does lean into this idea that he doesn't fit into this world anymore you know yeah not knowing the narrative, it was seemed pretty obvious to me that he was going to end up dying by the end of this movie because he just didn't fit in. Either he was going to be studied, as Dr. Wyzak or Wizak suggests, Wizak. you know, like, we, we want to put you in a closed environment, i.e. we want to study your talents and maybe militarize them or do something else. Very Cronenberg in that regard. But 
Yeah, it just seemed to me that there was no way for a happy ending for this character. And it, the visual change in him seemed to reflect that. Yeah. So there are some changes to the the way that his character unfolds from the book because mm-hmm. in the book it's discovered that he has a tumor and he's right. going to he's going to die it's going to oh, happen okay uh and so there's that kind of element lingering over it and the idea of what the dead zone is is something different that i believe each telling of the story has has used the dead zone differently mm-hmm. <laughs> Because in the novel, the dead zone was the part of, of his brain that was like damaged. And so oh, okay. it was like, mm-hmm. that's where the dormant psychic potential was kind of coming from was these dead zones in his brain from the from the coma. Whereas sure. like, in the movie, it's like he's talking about the information coming from the dead zone. And so it's a little bit, it's a little bit different in terms of of what is happening to the character. And I was wondering when the dead zone part was going to focus, what is going to come up in the movie. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know if I necessarily like that as much as the fact that it was a tumor. But I have a feeling that a lot of that had to do with this is going to be a depressive ending. Mm-hmm. Audiences don't like depressive endings. Mm-hmm. Let's not make it into a tumor thing. And let's have this sort of like loving, touching ending at the very end so that it feels like a win as opposed to him just dying as a as a terrorist, as you mentioned earlier, like. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's some weird there's some weird changes there. And I'm wondering if it's to make it more in the producer's mind, audience mm-hmm. friendly. Absolutely. Yeah, because even the ending we get, you're right, there's a romantic element. It's very clear that he is the one that got away for Sarah. Like she mm-hmm. still loves him, even though she has had a child with somebody else. I couldn't tell if it was the canvasser that we later see her with or if this was just some new guy honestly kind of immaterial all we need to know is that they can't be together even though they obviously both want to be and there is something touching about that final scene when you know she wants to know why he did it but more importantly she wants him to know that she still loves him and she's cradling him as he dies and it's all very sad and a touch romantic to me it actually felt very evocative of what we'll see in the fly later on this decade Mm, yep yeah, that's that's a good reference point. And I do wonder if as I was watching this and we get that kind of touching ending where she does hug him and he says goodbye and she says, I love you. Mm-hmm. It sounded like that was ADR. And I'm wondering if it was like added in after the fact as sort mm-hmm. of like another let's kind of rosy this ending up because it did not sound like she was saying that in the moment. So, Terry, I had the weirdest audio experience with this entire movie. I got the new Blu-ray. I think it's from Screen Factory. And I felt like most of the audio was ADR. Like, there was just something really odd. Just, there's some kind of uncanny valley about watching the action and then hearing it. It just, none of it felt like it was quite synced up. And I could not figure out if it was my disc or if it was a like, oh, we didn't always have great audio. Because I do know that they were struggling a little bit with some of the shooting. Like they shot this in and around Niagara-on-the-Lake here in Ontario. And apparently it was a really like up and down winter system where they had some really mild weather and then they had some really significant snowfall and really cold weather. So like when they find the the woman's body in the gazebo, apparently it was 
minus like 35 degrees celsius so extremely fucking cold they looked cold i'll be honest they look cold yeah (laughs) but i was wondering like oh i wonder if they were having some difficulties capturing the sound for whatever reason but a lot of this movie is shot indoors so i don't know that that explains it but you're right i mean at least in that sequence it does seem like did we go back and realize we needed something softer or more romantic to end the movie on? Yes, because I do think the movie just sort of abruptly ends. <laughs> oh, boy. I was like, I know it's going to end here, but also not even a coda. Like, you don't want to maybe have Denny have some special powers a la Shining or I guess in a way the movie has done everything it needs to do. We have confirmation that Stilson is not going to become president. We have avoided nuclear disaster. But at the same time, it was very, well, Johnny's story is done. Goodbye, everyone. I think that's a failure of this film, to be perfectly honest, because it doesn't give us a moment to sit with and reflect Mm -hmm. on what's happening. No. The gunshot goes off. He falls over the banister. Mm-hmm. The guy runs off. He he finds out that, you know, he did avert this catastrophic event. Mm-hmm. She holds him, says, I love you. Movie's over. Credits roll. And I feel yeah. I do think that a coda, like you mentioned, or something afterwards to like linger on it so the audience can sort of sit with it for a moment before it's mm-hmm. like, oh, time to move the theater. I guess the movie's over. Like it just right. it just felt so incredibly abrupt. And I do wonder if. Because I've said before that I find sometimes uh, Cronenberg's work to be kind of clinical and detached in terms of like the emotional aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And I did feel that in this. I felt like there are moments that should be emotional that I should be feeling for these characters. And I Mm -hmm. don't think that I was really getting that, which is going to be interesting because I feel that in The Fly a whole lot more once we get to that. So I feel like he he progresses a bit. But in this movie, I still feel that there is like a disconnect between the emotional story Mm -hmm. and the more science fiction side of it. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because we haven't really acknowledged this is the second movie that David Cronenberg releases in 1983. So the last episode on Cronenberg that we did on Videodrome, it actually has an almost identical ending, right? When Max Mm -hmm. Renfield Mm -hmm. gets this message from Nikki, which is probably not really Nikki, and then he just shoots himself and the movie just immediately cuts. But I felt like there the emotional kind of visceral impact of it is way stronger. It works within the world of that particular film, which is really nihilistic, which is really paranoid and hallucinatory. And even though there are similar elements here in the dead zone, where it's like he's getting visions, you wonder how much he can trust them. The reality is, is that the film has done a really good job of saying, oh, when he sees a vision, it's 100% accurate. You can trust it. And... There is a certain fatalistic kind of nihilistic bent to all of this, but not not comparable for me compared to Videodrome. So here we're we're trying to be like, no, everybody, it's okay. He died sacrificing himself to make the world a better place, but also goodbye. And it just doesn't it doesn't hit as strongly. No, and I think I think what you just said kind of hits on the reason why because I was I was thinking, well, why did I like that ending better than this ending? And I think mm-hmm. because Videodrome was nihilistic, as you mentioned. I think that yeah. it, if you have a nihilistic ending, leave ending on like a exclamation point is great. Here, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if the original story was a bit more nihilistic for for when he was shooting it, and then they maybe mm-hmm. sort of added in maybe that ADR I love you. And so because it's not trying to be a nihilistic ending. Right. 
<laughs> it's like trying to be a rosy one. It's like we need a little bit more to sit with that. And so I'm mm-hmm. wondering if that is a is that if that's a fault of maybe tampering of producers or reading right. or watching it and figuring out that they needed to change something in the editing room. I don't know, but I do think that might be why we're having such a, a different reaction to this abrupt ending than we did to Videodrome. Mm-hmm. So let's look at the sort of middle section and end section yes. of this movie, because, you know, I think the opening, it's got some interesting stuff, but it is a lot of not exposition, but we're laying the foundation, right? Like we're getting mm-hmm. to know a little bit about Johnny, his burgeoning relationship with Sarah. P.S. If a woman ever invites you in for sex, you don't say, mm, <laughs> let's wait a little bit longer because you could end up in a five-year coma. Go fuck that lady. <laughs> Yes, I knowing what was going to happen. I was like, oh, come on. Why, also, are you, why are you doing this way? When has a man ever refused a woman when she's the one who propositions him? Come on. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, my God. I will say this opening. The one the, the one thing I really did like about this, this opening section is mm-hmm. the the first vision he gets where all of a sudden he Ooh. is in the little girl's mm-hmm. room and, and he his bed is on fire yes that was like okay this is this is what cronenberg does great and i was like mm-hmm. this is a great sequence i love this and i kind of wish that that sort of weird being like the there intermingling of the vision and real life right yes yeah. yes i loved it so much and i was like okay i don't remember this this is great I hope this mm-hmm. kind of continues through the film, and it does to it a, does a lesser degree. But <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, like when when he's when he's figuring out who the serial killer is in the second part, like he is actually mm-hmm. there. Well, so like there's a little bit of that, but it doesn't. It's not as visually arresting as this first sequence is. No, it's uh, also hilarious. Terry, put that in your back pocket. We will come back to it while we get to existence because there is almost literally shot for shot that scene. Oh shit! Really? Hmm. Hmm. Okay fun times because that movie is very hallucinatory because it's like are we in the game or are we in real life and they're always blending together yeah it's good stuff yeah i agree with you i i initially felt underwhelmed by the car accident where we see Mm. this milk truck kind of (laughs) jackknife on the wintry road but then watching him plow into it and then going directly to it's been five years and your girlfriend has moved on you've lost your job your mom is kind of dying because she can't deal with it i thought you know oh wow this movie gets into it real fast it definitely does and the one thing that kind of made me laugh about that that opening though is with Mm -hmm. his mom who is be careful what you say here terry that is jackie burrow she is literally a canadian icon because she's from road to (laughs) avonlea Well, what I will say then (laughs) is I don't think they did her any favors because the way her dialogue is written. It's a ridiculous character. Cast her from your thoughts. She turned her back on you. She cleaves now unto another man, Mm -hmm. a husband. I'm like, okay, this is we're going for that religious mother. We're going for that sort of like almost Carrie-esque like structure of. Mm -hmm. And I I would say the other thing I I was realizing is that we have. We have King's obsession with like psychic powers coming full circle with all of these because we have you know uh-huh. Firestarter with with pyrokinetics. We mm-hmm. have this with te- with like the the psychic ability. We have Carrie with the telekinesis, and I was thinking about Carrie initially because the mom is is very much a, a stand in for religion. And oh yeah, I'm really glad they don't really 
that she doesn't survive very long because I was like, yeah. this this character is going to be really kind of annoying to me the way she is talking. Hmm. No, I I can definitely see that it feels heavy handed for how much mm-hmm. we get of this character. And you're right, the dialogue does not feel naturalistic in any sense. You know, she seems very concerned for Johnny, but it also. Uh, yeah, it just doesn't land quite as strongly as it should. And I couldn't help but wonder if we were trying to set up a kind of parallel with Dodd's mother, who also seems to be a very kind of strong-willed, overprotective woman as we move into the second part. Yeah, I definitely think there might be a little comparison there because we have like parents doing things for their for their kids and, and mm-hmm. trying to protect their kids at all, all costs. And there is definite connection here between what Dodd's mother does in that section, which I think works a lot better mm-hmm. than this opening section. And I think the problem might be there is a through line through here that I think is not examined um, as closely as I would like it to be about whether it's a gift or a curse. And this idea right. of like, mm-hmm. are you from hell? Are you from heaven? Because again, we're set with this religious this religious tone here yes. of like, she says that, she, that he's from heaven. Later, someone says that he's from hell. He talks about this curse. He talks about it as a gift. I think that there's a, enough little nuggets there, but I kind of wish the movie had threaded those together a mm-hmm. bit more to make it say something interesting by the end of the film, which I don't think... no. I don't it's think it does. Doing. No. And and you're absolutely right. I didn't really clock it, but hearing you say that, it does seem almost like a missed opportunity, right? You know, as much as you didn't enjoy this mother character because she is a little over the top, but not in the really good way, mm-hmm. I think it almost would have made more sense if she had us stuck around longer so that we could do that kind of interplay where she's reassuring Johnny, no, you could use this gift for good. This is from heaven. This is from God. This is a sign of the angels or something. And then having people like this reporter or even the man who ends up recruiting him to bring his kind of introverted son out of his shell, where he sees Johnny as an opportunity, you know, somebody mm-hmm. that he can use for his own purposes. But then when Johnny says, don't let your son go on the hockey trip because he's going to fall through the ice and die, this man doesn't believe him. So it really felt like we could have done more if we still wanted to keep these kind of vignette pieces to have that religion as a bit more of a through line. Because I got the impression that Stilson very much wants to play the religious angle, right? He's steeped in nostalgia. Let's go back to the way America used to be. Like, really, he's a proto-Trump, if we're being honest. It's Trump. Yeah. No, I watching this in 2023, I was like, oh, this is is the Trump. This is the Trump uh, bandwagon. (laughs) Yeah. Fucking like 40 years later. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so you kind of touch on another thing that I wish this this could have done differently if we weren't going to go for that angle is the idea that he is a tool. And that would have been something Mm -hmm. I think would have that would have pulled more from what Cronenberg has done in his his past, particularly like scanners, this idea of like, someone with this mental capacity, and then he's just constantly being used, you could have could have leaned more into that with the doctor, because we, mm-hmm. we do have that. We do have it a bit with like the sheriff comes to him because he wants to use him. The, sure. As you mentioned, Roger Stewart wants him to bring his his kid out. So everyone is using him. But I don't think the movie really leans strongly in that direction either. And so there's a lot mm. of these missed opportunities that I think I, I kind of wish that either the screenwriter or that Cronenberg uh, could have pulled more into it. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. And that I think ends up being a bit of my 
takeaway from the film is that the parts of it that feel connected to Cronenberg, some of the visual sense, you know, I do want to come back to the serial killer part of the film because yes. it was my favorite, but also because I think to me it feels the most interestingly Cronenbergian, although obviously, as you said, being used as a weapon, uh, like the whole end against Stilson feels very Videodrome, very Scanners in terms mm-hmm. of like, I'm a regular man who now has abilities and I have to like use them against someone. But I can't help but watch this film and think... This is only partially a David Cronenberg film because it feels like it's yeah. fighting Bohm's script. And I I wish I could see a version of this where Cronenberg wrote the script himself so that we could just have it authentically him. Same. And, okay, so talking about the serial killer part, though, mm-hmm. I completely forgot about this, this section. Because, again, oh, it's okay. been forever since I had read the book, forever since I had seen the movie. Mm-hmm. All I really remembered was him with Stilson. And I, for, in my mind, that was the main story. And that's oh, not okay. until basically the third act right. uh, or the yeah. after the midpoint is basically devoted to that whole aspect of it. But because you had texted me earlier or messaged me earlier saying that you didn't really care for, but you like the serial killer stuff. And as I, I was like, serial killer stuff. You were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what is this movie? Did I see something different as a kid? And we get to it and I'm like, oh, this stuff is actually really interesting. Mm-hmm. It felt it felt a little by the numbers, unfortunately, because sure. it was having to be condensed into a single it's act. It's so brief, right? <laughs> it really is. But I did enjoy the way it was unfolding. Mm-hmm. The idea of uh, Frank Dodd is also a through line in Stephen King's books. I believe Cujo makes mention of oh. the serial killer Frank Dodd oh, in the book. Hmm. So there's like, again, that we're seeing King starting off with making this world that he is writing within that mm-hmm. has connections to everybody else. And so as I got to this, I was like, oh, yeah, this is Frank Dodd. This is the serial killer. Mm-hmm. And I, I really enjoyed the way it unfolded, particularly with the, the set piece at at Frank's mother's house. Right. Yeah. Because of course the number one thing any King purist is going to pull out of this is, Oh shit. We're saying that these murders are happening in fucking castle rock. Like, (laughs) yeah, that's the place. It's one of the main places apart from dairy that I think is Mm -hmm. associated with King stories. But yeah, I mean, I think the other reason that I really like this a, so I, I made a connection between Johnny's mom and then also Dodd's mom in part mm-hmm. because Henrietta Dodd is played by Colleen Dehurst, and that's a woman who's also incredibly famous in Canada. She played Marilla oh. in Anne of Green Gables, which is like one of the seminal pieces of cultural texts to come out of Canada. So Canadians would immediately look at this actress and be like, oh shit, this is a, <laughs> a big significant kind of role. So that was interesting. We also have Tom Skerritt playing the sheriff. Yeah. So this is a couple of years after Alien. So it, it was very much just, oh, there's big actors in this exciting part of the film. So while I agree with you that it is a little paint by numbers, this also feels, yeah, it's just, it's really visually interesting. I think the other reason it stands out to me, and this is nothing to do with the film, but rather the legacy this feels like it anticipates certain portions of Silence of the Lambs for me. Oh. I think it's just, it's Cronenberg's choice to light oh, the house, the Dodds house in green lighting. And this idea that like the killer is there with you, but you don't quite know where or who it is. And 
I mean, I'm not trying to suggest that this influenced Demi's work or anything like that, but right. it just it felt like that kind of, ooh, you're in the house with the serial killer, but you don't actually know that until the moment, and then there's a big climactic confrontation. And it was really tense and shot well, and it was exciting, and and then it's just over, and it felt so brief, and I think I just wanted a bunch more. Me too. Uh, I actually think that this would be an interesting limited series Mm -hmm. uh, because i think you could spend more time on each individual part and i think the kind of episodic storytelling would probably fit better with that but yes you're right this Mm. this house was the moment that i was like "Ooh, i am emotionally invested in this i want to see how this is going to turn out and then it does have a very abrupt stop Mm -hmm. where he moves and then it's another situation that he has to deal with although i will say i think (laughs) i think dodd's use of scissors is a little a little too painful (laughs) like women's manicure scissors they're so tiny (laughs) (laughs) they're so tiny and when he turns it on himself i was like i i don't know if that's 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 the call here Ooh, yeah i mean part of me the the realist in me thought you know what i think you're just going to implant those in the top of your soft palate and that would just really Uh fucking hurt but i don't know Uh if it would kill you but then i thought you know what go with it go with it because visually I fully audibly just went, no, when <laughs> he descended on it, because it's visceral. You can feel the impact of it. And it's kind of shocking because I feel like we're trained to always think of, oh, this person's going to try to like kill the police. They're going to try to make an escape. And Dodd gets captured on the very first murder that Johnny comes in on. You know, he identifies him at the gazebo. They go to his house and Dodd just dies by suicide. Yeah, I think that's that's where the kind of paint by numbers aspect of it kind of bothered me because I was like, "Ooh, I like this. We have this mm-hmm. creepy tunnel. It's very oh evocative." Oh my god, the tunnel, Terry. That's so good. Oh, just you know, that's a, apparently a real tunnel in Niagara on the Lake where the temperatures oh, wow. were working for them, so they sprayed it down with water so it would freeze and refract the light like that. Oh wow, it is stunning. It looks so good. Yeah, I was I was like, ooh, I love this image. I wish there was more of this in this movie, yes! <laughs> to be honest. Because <laughs> I don't think the Stilson stuff affords us that kind of visual imagery because we're just no. doing campaign trail stuff. Like the moment where Johnny tries to get through the crowd to finally shake his hand, because I do love that earlier scene where Stilson puts the button in his hand so he can't touch yes. it. I did love that. But, you know, this to me felt way more 80s political thriller which i guess is appropriate but it felt like such a hard turn from the serial killer story that i don't think i forgave the stilson stuff no and i don't think it's it's given a whole lot of time to breathe the stilson stuff and i think that might Mm -hmm. be my biggest issue with this is that while i was glad that this movie was only a hundred or an hour and 43 minutes long Mm -hmm. i was like i feel that if this was a little bit Yes, if this was a little bit longer of a film or of more of an epic of a storytelling, you know, maybe two and a half hours or something, mm-hmm. they would have a little bit more time. I'm not sure I would enjoy it anymore, but they would right. have had more time to like really introduce these characters because they're introduced and then they're dispatched very quickly. It's so true. I think that is the biggest problem because you do have Tom Skerritt. You do have Martin Sheen. You do have these big mm-hmm. male actors we kind of have glossed over the female characters, but I think the movie also glosses over the female characters a little too much, unfortunately, but you have these big names and then they get maybe a couple scenes and Mm -hmm. that's about it. Yeah. It's so true. 
even, you know, there's a scene where Johnny is not in it at all. So we changed the perspective and we're just hanging out with Stilson as he brings in. I gathered Brenner is a reporter who is about to write a really mm-hmm. controversial or inflammatory story that's going to slam him so we've got him being pulled in and then we basically blackmail him with photos of infidelity but stilson has this heavy slash bodyguard slash fixer character sunny played by uh geza kovacs who apparently he was in i want to say scanners or the brood he was in scanners okay he was in scanners and this man is really visually interesting. Like the actor himself is quite striking on the frame. And I just thought this is intriguing, but also it's a plot point that just comes out of nowhere. And then as resolved, we don't really see those characters again. <laughs> like we see Sonny again at the end, but you know, Brenner, it's just kind of like, oh, it's been dealt with. And it felt like you could jettison it from the story. But again, if we yes. longer, we could have really done more with this. Yeah, that was my that was my exact thought on on the matter as well, because the scene felt needless because we already mm-hmm. know at this point that he is not going to be a good person. No, we already know this. And so it's like, why do we have another scene that is just reinforcing that it, there, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the, the movie? If mm-hmm. there were more sequences of this to sort of explain his character a bit more, that would have been something, of course, that it would have been a longer movie, which again, I think is what we're kind of asking for almost with this. But I did think that this, that that scene was kind of needless in what it was doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There, there was some really interesting kernels of ideas. We just Mm -hmm. didn't ultimately do anything further with it. And I, I think ultimately it's just, as we've kind of hit on the fact that we have a very unique visionary director. We have um, a screenwriter that is, I, I think he does a decent job of trying to, compartmentalize this a little bit long Uh meandering novel a little unwieldy right (laughs) yes and so i think he probably did the best he could but i do think it's it's very surface level whereas Mm -hmm. what i've seen from cronenberg up until this point has been i would have thought that he would have brought that this movie would have brought a little bit more of this sort of scanners or Mm the sort of rude or some sort of like something thematically interesting here that right for his big sort of non-writing debut, because I, I think this is a big movie. I think this was meant to be a big movie. It's a Stephen King adaptation when Stephen yeah. King is very, very big and popular at the time. And again, with the cast, it just it feels like this is supposed to be a big sort of mainstream flick. And I just it it kind of marvelizes his character It is his mm-hmm. directing in a way. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel like David Cronenberg. It doesn't feel up to par with what we've seen before. But I mean, (laughs) part of this is that we are really firmly moving into the kind of blockbuster era of Cronenberg. Mm -hmm. You know, we started to get that with Videodrome with the casting of uh, James Woods. And then we got it with Scanners where we saw a bigger budget. It was much more action driven. We had problems with the script for that one, but it was Cronenberg. It's just that he was writing it on a very, very short time period. So it didn't feel like it really capitalized on it and then this one yeah i think is meant to continue that trend i see a lot of people refer to this film as like his big hollywood film okay i think that's really silly because you see that it's shot entirely in and around niagara on the lake (laughs) which is a very canadian location 
all of the supporting cast are Canadian, so he was clearly still getting, like, all kinds of Canadian tax breaks. Like, this is a Canadian movie, folks. It's just that it's emphatically set in the U.S., dealing with U.S. politics. And yeah, that's Stephen King's shine, right? Like, we're entering into the heyday period where King works were coming out all the time, and they were blockbusters, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. I think it makes sense. Yeah. And I, what I do think that this, that this movie is kind of leaning into that I think is explored in the next movie when we talk about is that kind of mirroring the mainstream blockbuster type of movie with Cronenberg sensibility. And I don't Mm -hmm. think maybe this movie had that too much, but I think the next movie we we discuss about him will probably Mm -hmm. marry the two a bit better. It's the perfect synthesis, yes. Folks, when we come back to our Cronenberg side, we will get to talk about The Fly. Mm-hmm. He actually takes a couple of years off in between films. And I don't know if it means that it helps him out, but like just looking down the list of like iconic films to come, like we are firmly into the really good period now. Yeah. But uh, Terry, we're not talking mm-hmm. about a Cronenberg film when we come back because we have more Twin Peaks to do. <laughs> we sure do. <laughs> yeah. So, folks, uh, we came back and did a couple of David Lynch episodes in that first season, but he doesn't really do much more in that first season. So when we pick back up with Twin Peaks, we're going to be talking about the first two episodes of season two, which is going to require Terry and I to watch all the rest of season one and then we will talk principally about the david lynchian opener for season two i'm looking forward to it it's a lot it, it's gonna be like a twin peaks uh like a subversion. crash <laughs> yeah we're really just gonna get into it i think we'll have to do one more twin peaks to then talk about the episode that reveals the fate of laura palmer gotcha yeah but that's an episode for another day But until then, Mr. Terry, if people want to talk to you about why you're wrong and Brooke Adams is actually a secret weapon in this movie, how would they get in touch with you? (laughs) You, As long as Twitter is here, you will find me on Twitter or some of the other apps at Gaily Dreadful. And Joe, if they Mm -hmm. want to talk about how much of a cultural icon Jackie Burroughs or Colleen Dewhurst is, (laughs) how would they get in touch with you? absolutely should i would be happy to talk to you about it <laughs> and i can be reached at b stole my remote and that's the letter b and of course we will also thank the anatomy of a screen pod squad network for hosting the show so yes folks uh get that twin peaks going because we've got a bunch of episodes to watch before we come back in a couple of weeks so um until then enjoy your sexy and surrealness <laughs> Scream Pod Squad.